Galatians chapter 5. If you're uh, visiting with us here this morning and you're new to the New Testament, Galatians is a little over halfway through the New Testament. If you find the longer books of First and Second Corinthians, Galatians uh, follows right after Second Corinthians. I was chatting with a friend of mine <clears throat> this past week, and uh, we were talking about a gentleman that had been in the room with us for a few moments, and then uh, he left. And uh, my friend said, do you know what he does for a living? And I said, no. And he says, uh, he's probably the foremost casket maker in the Pacific Northwest. And I could hear it coming. He said, uh, people are just dying to get one. (laughs) So I uh, chuckled appropriately, although I'd heard the joke. And uh, then out of a clear blue sky, just like a thunderbolt on a cloudless day, he said, I'm not afraid to die. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, "Uh, most people are. I said, why aren't you afraid to die? And he said, well, when you die, you die. That's all. It's just all up with you. It's over. It's, that's the end. You just die. And there's nothing more. And I said, how do you know? And he said, well, that's what my mother told me. And that's what I've always believed. I just know. And I said, well, what, what if there is a comeuppance? What if we do have to stand before God and ante up? What what then? And he thought about it for a minute. And he said, well, he, he said, I, I've been a pretty good person. And actually, he has been. He's a nice guy. He's a good fisherman. Couldn't be all bad. <laughs> he is very pleasant. Nice to be around. I enjoy talking to him. We, we talk often. Uh... I said, well, um, so a, lot, a lot of people believe that. If they, they've just done the best they can, then they're, they're acceptable. But uh, what if that's not good enough? And then he just got real quiet, and I, I chatted on a bit with him, but he didn't respond, and so I figured that the door was closed. So we went on talking about other things. But I walked out of the room thinking, that's uh, what most of the people in the world believe. That's what I call folk. Uh, religion. That's the religion of the masses. That uh, someday we'll stand before God and there's a kind of a scale in there. there we, he'll put our good works over here and our bad works over here and somehow it'll even out and, and God is, because he's, because he's nice, he'll, uh, he'll say, well, you know, you, you missed a few here, you missed a few there, but, but in, the, in general you, you did okay. We'll let you in. What people don't understand, well, really there are two things they don't understand. They don't understand the holiness of God, that God is utterly holy, untainted by sin. He can have nothing, whatever, to do with sin. And the second thing they don't understand is the depths of their own depravity. We don't know how sinful we are and how far short we have, we have fallen. Uh, when I used to work uh, with the YMCA, that was back when... The ice cap covered North America. Uh, I was uh, uh, used to tell stories to kids. And one of the stories I used to tell ended up with an illustration. Uh, I, I also taught swimming to these kids, and so I used an illustration from swimming. I said, those are all lined up on the coast of California, 
and uh, we were given the task of swimming to Hawaii. Uh, John here, who's a very good swimmer, would probably make it out there two or three miles. I would drown in the surf. How about the rest of you? Would any of us make it? And uh, they would have to conclude that no matter how hard they tried, no matter how much water they kicked up, you know, how, m- how much they thrashed around, they would never get to Hawaii. Sooner or later, they would all drown. And that's the problem. If the standard is perfection, not one of us can make it. The only way we can make it is to be in Christ, who's the only perfect person that ever lived. And the only way to get into Christ is by faith. can't be done by good works. can't be done on the basis of our merit. It's only done by believing. Faith only. Uh, sola fide, as the reformers used to say. Only faith, only faith, nothing else. No mixture of faith and, and works. Only faith. You just believe. God is there. You just ask him. That's all you have to do. See? Now, most Christians, I think, or I wouldn't say most Christians, but a lot of Christians are familiar with that truth. They understand that justification is by faith. But when it comes to sanctification, this process of growing in Christ, that's when they get confused. That's when they begin to mix law and grace. This was the problem with the Galatians. They would admit that they had found Christ by faith, or he had found them, to put it the the biblical way. But uh, uh, they grew by trying harder, praying more, reading the Bible more, memorizing more of Scripture, and and gathering more with Christians, and serving more, and giving more. And, and the more you did of these things, then the more approval you gained from God. And they don't realize that there is no way to gain more approval from God. He already loves you, no matter what you do, if you're in Christ. Because he sees you as he sees his Son. And that is such a freeing, liberating truth. Now, it's that that Paul wants to call our attention to in chapter 5. The freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, chapters 3 and 4 contain the theological portion of this, uh, of this book. Paul argues strenuously for salvation and sanctification and our final salvation, that is, uh, gaining heaven. All of that is by faith. It takes us back to the story of Abraham and demonstrates that God has always gone about the the, the problem this way. This is how he solves the problem of human sin. It's always been true. He wraps up his argument at the end of chapter 4. Then he goes into what what commentators call the hortatory section of Galatians. Now, what they mean by hortatory is that Paul begins to appeal to the Galatians to respond to the truth that he spelled out in chapters 3 and 4. And uh, He begins uh, with this assertion, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, uh, this freedom, we need to understand, is not cheap. It's very, very costly. But uh, we're not the one that has to pay the price, uh, the cost is the price that that God himself paid. Your salvation, my salvation, uh, was gained at the cost of the life of God. And we must never forget that. Chris Riddell commented this past week on, uh, I think it was General Neal's reference to the freedom that was gained in uh, 
in, in the Gulf area as a result of this war. And he pointed out that this, this war, uh, that freedom is never gained cheaply. It's always gained at great cost. And in terms of men and women and materiel, it's been a very costly victory, particularly for those of you uh, that have suffered separation from your lost ones and, and those that have suffered the loss uh, of, of their loved ones through, uh, through casualties. Uh, freedom always costs, but this freedom was costly to God. It uh, involved the giving up of his life. So, Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. And do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. See, that's what legalism is. The, the minute you admit the least little bit of legalism into your life, then it becomes a heavy burden, enslaves us. And to go back, Paul says, into the, into the slavery is like the uh, Kuwaitis wanting to go back under the Iraqis. The, the liberty has been gained, you see, and now you're set free. But for them to want to go back under these, these cruel, capricious tormentors, which is what the law does to, it when, to us when we try to justify ourselves by the law, would be irrational. And that's what Paul is saying. Stand fast in the liberty that Christ has gained for you, and don't be burdened again by a yoke of, uh, of slavery. Now, in the verses that follow, Paul uh, contrasts authentic Christianity and this other brand of gospel, which uh, he tells us uh, early on in the book is not, uh, is not another gospel. There is an authentic Christianity, and then there is a bogus, spurious Christianity, and he contrasts the two. Verse 2, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised, uh, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole laws. We've said before, the law is a unit. If you break one law, you break them all. You, if you're going to be justified or sanctified by keeping the law, then you have to keep every law in the book. There's no escaping it. Uh, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. Now, he's not saying that you are separated from Christ in the sense that you have lost your relationship to him. It just means that... Uh, you have been alienated in the sense that you're no longer counting upon Christ. You're counting upon yourself or another element for your salvation. You have fallen away from grace, which is a further explanation of that statement. You've been alienated from Christ. Now, to fall away from grace does not mean to fall away from God. The opposite of falling away from grace is growing in grace. In other words, he says, you're no longer experiencing the life of grace. You're, it all depends on you. you. You have to try harder. You have to make uh, these impossible efforts to rid yourself of these habits instead of growing in grace, which Paul, Peter, all the apostles tell us is the only way that, uh, that we can grow. Now, uh, the point that I think Paul is making in these two verses, uh, three verses, verses 2, 3, and 4, is that a little bit of law destroys the whole thing. Once you admit just a tincture of law, just one little law, then it changes the whole, your whole orientation. Um, let me give you an illustration. Uh, you're going out the connector here, and you're planning to go to 
mountain home. And uh, just a flick of the wrist, you get in the wrong lane, and you're headed west toward Caldwell. And once you're started west toward Caldwell, it's very difficult to get back. Now, that's the sort of thing that Paul is saying. It just takes a, a little bit of law to distort the whole thing, to get you moving in the wrong direction. And as he's going to say later on, the, it's, it's wrong in the sense that it doesn't work, it doesn't produce righteousness, it doesn't free you from guilt, it doesn't make you a better person, it doesn't give you more capacity to serve, it doesn't do anything for you. You've cut yourself off from the power of God when you begin to count upon yourself. You can't have a little bit of self-effort and a little bit of God. It's got to be all or nothing at all. That's his, that's his point. Otherwise, we undo what God is doing in our lives. Uh, back in 1928, Rose Bowl game between Georgia Tech and the University of California, a young running back by the name of Roy Riggles uh, scooped up a, a fumble, got hit two or three times, turned around and started to run. He saw the, the goal line in front of him and uh, made this magnificent run in the wrong direction. And uh, one of his own teammates tackled him on the five-yard line. <laughs> or it would have been a score for Georgia Tech. Uh, now, that's the sort of thing that Paul is talking about. And he's, he's the one who goes after us to tackle us. And he knocks us down before we score for the other side. Because he wants us to understand you can't have it both ways. If we're going to go for the goal, we have to go for it in the only way possible. In the only godly way that's possible. And that's to do it by grace. We have to say it all depends on you. It doesn't depend on self-effort. It doesn't depend on my, how much time I spend in the Word. It doesn't depend on how many verses I've memorized. It doesn't depend on how regimented I've made my life and how, how consistent my quiet time is. All those things are good. Okay? But those are all things that center us upon Christ and enable us to lay hold of more of Him. They're not the things that make us better people. And uh, if we miss a day or two, uh, it hasn't set us back. See, the important thing is to center on Christ and to count on Him and depend upon Him and to rely upon Him because He is the source of power in our life. And uh, when we depend on Him, we have all of God for whatever we have to do. Now, um, Paul continues on in verses 5 and 6 to tell us what authentic Christi uh, Christianity is. Now, the bogus the false, the phony Christianity is a mixture of law and grace. Real Christianity is pure grace, and he spells it out for us. Uh, in my mind, this, this is one of the most pregnant passages in the New Testament. I think every word is significant. This is the verse that more than any other in my mind tells me how I can get to be the kind of person I want to be. Now, we all have, some, we all have longings and yearnings for righteousness. And uh, the question is, how do we get there? Well, this is the verse that tells us. And uh, you almost have to take this verse apart word by word and, and, and reflect upon it. This would be a good, good verse to memorize and put up on your mirror and, and on the dashboard of your car. Reflect on through the week. Let, let, me, let me show you what, uh, what Paul is saying. Verse 5. By faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now he gives us the source of our life in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. It is through the Spirit that we gain the righteousness 
for which we, we hope. You see, it's the spirit that, that brings home to us the love of God. As Paul puts it in Romans, he says, it's the spirit that has poured into our hearts the love of God. It's the spirit that reminds us that, uh, that God loves us. He loved us even when we were unworthy of that love. He loves us now, though we're unworthy of that love. He can't stop loving us, no matter what we do or don't do. He can't stop liking us. He is pleased with you. He approves of you in the same sense that he approves of, your, of his son because you are in Christ. He couldn't love you anymore regardless of what you did. Well, it's the Spirit of God that, uh, that, that pours that love into our hearts and assures us of that love. He's the one that cries in us, as Paul says, Abba, Father, gives us that sense of intimacy and closeness to the Father that we could not otherwise have. And it's that love that makes us want to love him in return. It's the goodness of God, that Paul says, that draws us to repentance. Carolyn was commenting this week on these, these pitiful Iraqis that crawl out of their holes and, and fall on their knees before the Allied forces and kiss their feet. Why? Well, it's because they're being shown kindness. See, these were the people that a few weeks, a few days ago, were shooting at these people. They, they were trying to kill them. And now their captors have shown them mercy. And they come out of their holes literally on their hands and knees and try to kiss their hands and, and their feet. It's such a relief to know that they're going to be treated uh, with mercy. And uh, so it is with us. What a, what a relief it is to know. That God loves us like that. And the only thing we can do is, is love in response. See? It's, it's his love. It causes our love for him to, to grow. The Spirit is also the one who, as Jesus said, convinces us of sin and righteousness and, and judgment. And it's the Spirit who produces in us uh, the fruit of righteousness. Uh, later in chapter 5, Paul will say, Live by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And then in verse 27, the fruit of the Spirit, the products uh, of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the Spirit who produces anything uh, good within us. That's the source. It's the Spirit of God. The means is our faith. That's, that's all we have to give. And ironically, even that is a gift of God, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. We can't even conjure up faith. Uh, it's God who works in us to give us the, the faith to cling to God. That's all faith is. It's just it's asking and relying and counting and depending and trusting on, in Him. Uh, faith is not uh, believing things that are hard to believe. It's just relying upon God and, and then taking a step toward whatever it is that God wants us to do, knowing that underneath are the everlasting arms, that he's in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, that he's at work in us to, to accomplish everything that he's asked us uh, to do. So the means is faith. The process, Paul says, is waiting. Verse 5. Uh, the New American Standard uh, Bible is a bit more true to the text here. By faith, we wait for, he says, the hope of righteousness. It's a process. 
Growing in grace is not something that happens overnight. It's perplexing to some people why God doesn't change them. Sometimes I, uh, you know, I look at myself and I see the habits that have been resident in me for years, and I wonder why God isn't dealing with those. They bother me. And I think God is saying, well, yeah, they bother me too, but I, there are other things right now that we want to work on. Let's, let's set that aside for a while. And, and there are other, other issues that we need to, to deal with. Sometimes we hear these uh, the stories of immediate uh, deliverance, and they confuse us. Someone stands up and they say, I was delivered from a cocaine addiction like that. Never had any urge again. And it happens. It happens. People sometimes, uh, God deals with them that way. But not everyone. Some people, and there may be some of you here that have struggled with a cocaine addiction for years. Or you've struggled with an alcohol problem. Or you have a problem with your temper and you don't understand why God doesn't deal with that. You're concerned. He's concerned too, you see. But uh, it it takes time. Uh, Sometimes he delivers immediately. Sometimes he doesn't. He as we learned in Judges, he leaves these enemies of our soul within in order to keep us clinging to him. They teach us to fight. They teach us to trust. They teach us to keep hanging on to him. Uh, my nemesis all through my life was my temper. When I was a kid growing up, it was forever getting me in trouble. And uh, just about the time I think I've got that thing under control, out it comes. You know, And I, I humiliate myself, and, I, uh, and then it just reminds me, well, God isn't finished with me yet. A lot of work there to be done. And it just keeps me on my knees, keeps me dependent, keeps me trusting him for that day that he's, he's, going, to, uh, he's going to give me the righteousness I hope for. See? So we wait, and we wait, and we wait. Can't be holy in a hurry. We wait for righteousness. It's a process. But the product, the product is sure. You see what he says? Uh, we eagerly wait through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now, as you know, I've, I've said this many times, hope in the New Testament, in the, in, in the Greek language, has no idea of contingency in it. When we hope for something, there's all, always that element of, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. You know, I, I, I hope to get a raise this year, or I hope to, uh, it will rain, uh, my crops need it, whatever. There's always that element of uncertainty. But in the New Testament, the word for hope is the word for certainty. And it can be translated that way in every case, the certainty of righteousness. See, that's what God has in mind for you and me. One day, one day, we'll be just like Jesus. You read the Gospels, and uh, you know, we, we're delighted to see what he was like, and we long to be like that. And the promise is that one day we'll be just like him, but maybe not in this life. See? It awaits heaven. Can't have heaven in this life. Well, one of these days, we're going to be like him. Uh, look, turn with me to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, 1. 1 John is uh, toward the end of the New Testament. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So if you find Revelation and work back, it's the uh, fourth book back. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. He loved us before we were worthy of his love. But he's going to make us worthy of it. See, right now we're, we're worthy of his love because we're in Christ. 
But one of these days we're going to be worthy of his love because we're like Christ. It's a sure thing. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the sons of God. We've been born of God. We're his children. And that is what we are. That's not just a title, men and women. That's reality. If you're in Christ, because Christ is his son, he is the son of God, you are a son of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Our, his glory was veiled in flesh, and so is ours. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We don't look like sons of God. Sometimes we don't act like sons of God, but we are, he says. But this is what we know. When he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him, that is this hope in Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the incentive we have to keep falling forward, to keep getting up when we sin and trying again. It's because we know, John says, that one day we'll be like him. I've always been fond of uh, C.S. Lewis' uh, uh, quote in The Weight of Glory. He says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. One of these days, you will be revealed in all of your glory without one single flaw. That's a sure bet. You cannot lose out on that one. And that's what keeps us going. So what if you fail this week? You just uh, pick yourself up and uh, you move on. You just keep on trusting. Because one of these days, you're going to be just like God's son. Now, that, that to me is, is, a, is a wonderful summary of, what it, of, of the process of sanctification and how, how it comes about. The source is the Holy Spirit. The means is... His faith, the process is waiting. It doesn't happen overnight. And uh, the product is uh, righteousness. But uh, the wonderful thing about this righteousness, as Paul goes on to say, is that it is not mere correctness. There's a difference between being righteous and being good. You know, I think we even have that, uh, the word uh, righteous connotes uh, sometimes just a mere correctness, just doing things the right way. But uh, what Paul is describing here is something other, something more. It's what James describes as the gentleness of wisdom. There is a, a winsomeness about the righteousness that the Holy Spirit produces that is unlike any mere uh, righteousness that we see here uh, on this earth. And Paul describes it this way. Let's go back to Galatians again. Uh, six, verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. In other words, uh, nothing natural will work. Nothing. But uh, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. See, that's, that's the righteousness that characterizes us. There's a, a wonderful winsomeness about it. That can only be described as, as being loving. And Paul will spell that out for us uh, again. The passage that I read earlier, verse 22. 
love, joy, peace, that is tranquility, patience, uh, literally having a long fuse, someone that doesn't blow up quickly, kindness, the word is used, uh, was used in the Greek world for, for uh, uh, good wine, it means mellow, it's not harsh, not acerbic, not biting, uh, goodness, faithfulness, that is reliability, uh, reliable, someone that that comes through, gentleness, non, non-defensiveness, uh, self-control. Paul says, what law is there against any of these? You meet people like this and, and, you, and you say that. Now that's a person that is, that is genuinely good. And that is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read something to you. I'm going to read it again. As many of you know, I'm a George McDonald freak. And uh, I came across a book of George MacDonald uh, essays that are, are unpublished. And I guard this thing with my, uh, with my life. And uh, there's an uh, incident in here I would like to read to you. It's a bit long, but I still want to uh, read most of it. Because I think it describes well the difference between being correct and being Righteous, as Paul describes it here, being being lovingly righteous. The uh, young clergyman here bought a tin of uh, tobacco that he's going to take to his friend, and uh, he said, "As I rose to go, I re- remember the tobacco in my pocket. I had not bought it for myself. I never could smoke." And then he goes on to describe why he never could, uh, never had learned to smoke a pipe. Then he says, um, "Though I uh, that I didn't smoke myself was no reason why I should not help old Rogers to smoke, so I pulled out the tobacco. You smoke, don't you, Rogers? I, I said, well, sir, I can't deny it. It's not much I spend on tobacco anyway, is it, uh, wife? No, it isn't, answered his wife. You don't think there's any harm in smoking a pipe, sir? Not the least, I answered with emphasis. You see, sir, he went on, not giving me time to prove how far I was from thinking there was any harm in it. You see, sir, sailors learn many ways they might be better without. I used to take my pan of grog with the rest of them, but I give that up quite, causes how I don't want to now. Causes how, interrupted his wife, you spend the money on tea for me instead. You wicked old man, how you do tell stories. Well, I take my share of tea. And I'm sure it's a, it's a deal better for me. But to tell you the truth, sir, I was a little troubled in my mind about the tobacco, not knowing whether I ought to have it or not. For you see, the parson that's gone didn't, much, uh, didn't more than half like it. For I could tell by the turn of his households, I'm, I'm not a sailor, so I don't know what that is, when he came in, the, in at the door and me a-smoking. Not as he said anything, for you see, I was an old man, and I dare say that kept him quiet. But I did hear him blow up a young chap in the village, he came upon promiscuous like with a pipe in his mouth, broadside to be sure. So I was in two minds whether I ought to go on with my pipe or not. And how did you settle the question, Rogers? Why, I followed my old chart, sir. Quite right, one mustn't uh, mind too much what other people think. Oh, no, that's not what I meant, sir. What do you mean, then? I would like to know. Well, sir, I mean I said to myself, Now, old Rogers, what do you think the Lord would say about this here tobacco business? And what did you think he would say? Why, sir, I thought he would say, Old Rogers, have your tobacco. Only mind you don't grumble when you ain't got none. (laughs) And I thought, bingo. 
You know, that's the kind of righteousness that, uh, that the Spirit of God produces. Uh, it's not on the surface. It's way down deep, that kind of compassion and concern for people. And Paul is going to uh, pick that up in the next paragraph. And uh, he will say in verse 13, Don't use your freedom to indulge your own sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. That's what the Holy Spirit's about. It's producing in you and me that quality of love. Now, uh, in the few minutes that are left, let's look at the next paragraph. We'll just take a moment to uh, try to draw out some of Paul's uh, uh, conclusions. Verse 7. Now, you'll notice there's a shift in emphasis here. He's been talking about the practice of true Christianity and uh, the practice of legalism, and he contrasts the two. Now he talks about the preaching of it, the proclamation of it, and he, uh, he sort of levels his guns at, at those in, uh, in Galatia who were, who were teaching others that they could, they could, they could produce uh, righteousness out of themselves. Verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. And when Paul came, he taught them pure grace. And uh, then these, uh, these legalizers, these Judaizers, followed Paul, began to undercut his ministry and say, well, yeah, it's all right to believe in Christ because he's the Messiah, but, but in order to be a true Jew, you have to be circumcised. It's just a very small little surgical procedure, nothing to it. And if you're circumcised, then, uh, then God will accept you fully, see. And here we're back again to this issue of all or nothing at all. Paul says, no, no, no. If you admit just one little thing you can do to render God more favorably, more favorable, uh, then you've, you've vitiated the whole process. You've undone everything that Christ has, has done for you. He says, who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? When I read this, I thought, remember when Zola Budd stepped on Mary Decker's heel in the uh, Olympic trial some years ago and Knocked her off the track and out of the out of the Olympics. That's the sort of thing he's describing here. You, you are running your race well. It's the analogy that Paul so often uses. And these Judaizers stepped on your heel and knocked you off the track and and uh, kept you from obeying the truth. You understand what he's saying? A little legalism is not only not a good thing; it's counterproductive. Legalism will prevent you from obeying the truth. The only way to obey the truth is by faith. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. That's not from God. You won't find that in God's Word. You won't even find that in the Old Testament as we've seen. Abraham wasn't saved 50% by works and 50% by faith. He was saved by faith, 100%. That's always been God's way. Kind of persuasion doesn't come from God. Little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little warning here. The same way yeast permeates the whole mass, a little bit of legalism permeates the whole church. That's why Paul is so angry and so upset. And that's why we here in this church screen teachers, not because we want people with a certain academic level, but because a little bit of legalism. Someone comes in and they start to teach and it's a mixture of grace and law and and it just spreads like, like yeast, like wildfire throughout the whole church. It's a very serious thing uh, to teach legalism. As Paul goes on to say in, in verse 10, the one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. That's serious sin 
to be a legalist, not a picadillo, it's not a small thing. But when we mix law and grace in our message, there will there will be a penalty. Paul says, um, "Brothers," he says, "if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted?" In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Apparently, these false teachers that had come into Galatia were saying that even Paul switched sides and he's teaching uh, circumcision. And Paul says, if that were true, why am I still being persecuted? Remember when we talked about Ishmael and Isaac, and I pointed out that Ishmael always persecuted Isaac and, and always will. Legalists will always persecute those that, that understand faith and teach it because they don't understand it. They, they, they don't see the beauty in it. And uh, they, uh, they, uh, they'll, they'll give people a hard time that understand the concept of, of grace. Paul says uh, it's obvious that I'm still uh, preaching grace because I'm still being persecuted. Uh, And the reason I'm being persecuted is because of the offense of the cross. The cross will always offend people. That's why uh, legalists uh, will often persecute people that understand grace. Because the cross says to them, you can't do it. God had to do it. And there is in all of us this, this hunger to do it by ourselves, to be able to stand before God and put our thumbs behind our suspenders and say, we contributed. But the cross says, you and I can contribute absolutely nothing. And that's why people get angry when we preach the cross. They get all puckered up emotionally because uh, they don't like that. Uh, you know, those of you that have spent time in uh, secular universities, I have uh, spent some time in the religious, uh, uh, the religion department of a university in California. And uh, my goodness, we could talk about the Bible there. And we could talk about Hittite law codes and the Hiphil stem in the Hebrew and all that stuff. You know, we, but you talk about the cross, and you go from being a sage to being a fool. People. You know, they look at you like you still have training wheels on your bike. And, and you, you fall out of favor with them because the cross is very, very offensive to people. They don't like it. Why? Well, because it says you can't contribute one thing to your salvation, to your sanctification, to your, your eternal destiny. It all depends upon God. That's offensive. Now, uh, <laughs> In verse 12, I think I'll just read this verse and let it speak for itself. This is one of those verses that does not bear extensive uh, elaboration. Uh, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Uh, he's talking about circumcision, of course, and he's saying those people that want to circumcise themselves, I uh, just, just wish they'd go ahead and emasculate themselves. Luther translates this uh, phrase, I would like to see the knife slip. And uh, I just leave that with you for your consideration. Uh, But, you know, it's a very angry, very earthy statement, but a very angry statement. You can see that Paul is just incensed. He's furious. And well, he should be. Because uh, legalism is awful. It is awful. It takes all the joy out of our life. Churches that are shot through with legalism are grim, joyless places. 
I don't know why anybody goes there. People, Most people have enough trouble of their own. And they go and they get hammered again and again and again with the law. That's all they hear. I feel for them. You know, I just... Uh, you know, I, I hope all of us can go into these situations and we can, we can preach this deliverance that Paul himself is talking about and teach people to stand fast in the liberty that they have in Christ. Now let me go back in conclusion to one phrase that Paul uses, verse 10. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. That's a wonderful statement. Paul says, I'm confident. That you will take no other view. In other words, uh, no other view than the one I espouse and the one that you originally embraced. Uh, how, how could he have that confidence? You know, Paul is always speaking like that. In Philippians, he says, I am confident that he who has begun a good work in you will uh, perfect it until the day of, of Christ. And in Second Timothy, he's talking about certain ones that had apostatized and turned away from him and and Paul says, uh, it's all right, it's all right, because there is this twofold seal. The Lord knows those that are his, and everyone that names the name of Christ will depart from iniquity. What is he saying? True Christians will grow. That's what he's saying. That uh, if we're not growing, then our faith is not authentic. It's just on the surface. We haven't really put our roots down into, into Christ and made him Lord. But I'm convinced that once you have been regenerated, once you have experienced the new birth, you will persevere to the end. And not only will you persevere, you will grow. You will grow in grace. The reason Paul could be so confident is because he knew this was God's work. If it was uh, men and women at work, then uh, he, he might feel it's not going to work. Some, some, some people are going to fail along the way. But he knew that these people were going to grow because God was at work. And God doesn't ever start any project and leave it unfinished. He completes it. A group of people came to Jesus once and said, How can we do the works of God? I've commented on this verse before. How audacious of us to think we can do the work of God. The only person who can do the work of God is God. And that's why Jesus said, this is the work of God. You want to know how to do the work of God? Keep on believing in the one whom he has sent. And that's Paul's message to us today. Just keep on believing. Just keep on trusting. Just keep on waiting. And one of these days, you'll have that righteousness for which you hope. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. There are probably some people here for whom this is something brand new. They've been working hard. You've been working hard to try to please God. And uh, you've experienced this sort of all overish guilt that all of us experience when we try to work for our acceptance. The best news that I can tell you is that you don't have to, you don't have to work for God's love, you don't have to try harder. He's there for the asking. Just ask him to come into your life. Thank him for caring enough about you to come to earth and die for you. Thank you that 
He forgives all of your sins on the basis of that, uh, that once-for-all act. All sins, past, present, future, are forgiven. That when he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. It's finished. So just uh, accept what he's done. And then ask him to take over your life and begin to deal with the issues that, uh, that trouble him. Lord, your word tells us that if we uh, believe in our heart and, and confess with our lips, we will be saved. Saved from all of the oughts and shoulds and musts and have-tos that have governed our lives. And we can enter into the freedom that we have uh, in Christ. Deliver us from all those efforts to try to save ourselves and sanctify ourselves and make ourselves worthy and clean up our own acts and help us to accept the work that you have done and you are doing in us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.